Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Afternoon, everyone. I should say good morning. It's a blessing to be back with you today. So we are at the penultimate or almost last session in Ruth. And we actually conclude our time in Ruth um, next week for our Christmas Sunday services. And so um, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. And um, just been so tremendously blessed at the, just the richness of this short, small and yet deep book. And I'm just so grateful for the way in which the Lord has been speaking to my heart specifically and and personally through it, as I trust that he's been speaking to us all. And um, in chapter 4, we see, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12, and um, we're going to see the Redeemer revealed. And this is kind of basically the the, the climax of the book, if you like. And um, just to kind of help us maybe anchor things in our minds, um, I'd like to ask if you would cast your mind to such an occasion as you might have fallen on hard times. Now, for some of you, that might be quite difficult. For others, you're like, that's not a stretch at all. (laughs) I live in that place. And you know that when you're in that situation and you're in hard times, you look for help. You look for opportunities to improve your situation in various means and in different ways. Now, there are some, and maybe some of us, but some people in general who, when falling on hard times in that manner, they actually um, decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make acquaintance with the pawn shop. Now, that's not P-O-R-N, that's P-A-W-N, just to be clear. The pawn broker... And it took me a while as, as I was growing up to understand the, the, the role of the pawnbroker. But as far as I understand it, not having had to, to visit a pawnbroker, it's quite a simple principle, really. Um, you take something of value, the pawnbroker buys it from you, and they maybe declare that they're going to hold it for a certain period of time within which you can come and redeem the item basically you can buy back the item so they hold the item in their possession for a a period of time it's yours still although they do advertise it because they look for the opportunity to sell it on and make money but if you come back within the specified time then you're able to buy back the item normally at a price that is higher than you actually were given for it. And the item is restored to your, your personal ownership and usage. And um, that's, that's basically how pawnbroking works. And um, pawnbrokers seem to have kind of taken on um, different guises. Um, I saw a program not so long ago where it was um, top flight, um, high value pawnbrokers where they were just dealing with things 100,000 plus. I, I didn't really watch the program. I just thought it was quite an interesting concept that you would have people who have loads of money actually needing the services of a pawnbroker. And so it goes to show that everybody is potentially and um, at some point... Um, could benefit from the services of a pawnbroker. It's something that could affect anybody. Hard times can come to us all. And the reality is that as we look at Ruth 4, we not only see a practical expression of redemption being brought back from hard times, but we see such a spiritual picture of redemption. It is phenomenal. We see the picture of God's redemption of his people 
being outworked and played out. And um, may the Lord help me as I seek to, to unpack that in a way that it might excite you the way that it excites me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are so phenomenally grateful that you have given your son, Jesus Christ, in order that we might have relationship with you. I thank you, Father, that even in the hardest of times, we have hope. We have hope because you are our redeemer. I pray that you would help to make that clear to us, that you would speak to our hearts by your spirit, that you would enliven us, that you would excite and infuse us for the glory of your son, who is Jesus Christ, the great redeemer. Thank you for your word and thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit who enables me to speak and enables all of us to hear. According to your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're in Ruth chapter 4 and Ruth is a widow and the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who is also a widow, um, they are bereft of husbands. And they have been on quite a journey through hardship. Hardship and yet hope. And in the last chapter we saw Ruth take um, instruction to pursue that hope. And to seek out her redeemer. His name is Boaz. And he's the hero in the drama. And as we came to the end of the chapter, Ruth having put a proposition to Boaz, asking him to take her under his wing. Because he is a redeemer in 2 verse 9. Basically, righteously proposing to Boaz, not merely that he would marry her, but that actually he would fulfill his duty as a redeemer. Boaz was known as a, a relative redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, a relative rescuer. He is a direct relative of Ruth and Naomi's dead husbands, and under the law, he was to raise up an offspring in order that his relative's name would be continued and the inheritance would be passed on. As they got to the end of chapter 3, Boaz said, I will do this, but there is a relative who is closer to you than I am. There is a relative who is closer in line to you than I am and has responsibility to fulfill this task. And so we were left on a little bit of a cliffhanger as great dramas ought to, right? Now obviously we have the story in hand and I'm sure you've read it over a few times probably. So let's see how this plays out. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So we see Boaz in a place known as the gate. The gate was literally that. It was the, the place of the city gates. And at the city gates, it, was, it basically served the function of their town hall, if you like. It's the place where judicial um, issues were, were heard and resolved. And so Boaz 
who went up to the gate, had a place at the gates, showing that he was a man of status. He was a, a man of worth and value within the community. And so he was readily able to go to the gate and not just call an audience, as we'll see, but actually command the, the attention of individuals. And so he's here at this place and he sees the Redeemer. Now this is speaking of an unnamed individual who is a closer relation than he is. And so he calls the Redeemer over and the Redeemer doesn't ask what's going on. He doesn't ask why. Maybe this is a, a, an indication of Boaz's um, social stature. But he comes over and he sits down. And so Boaz, in verse 2, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he now has a council. Um, apparently, ten was the number that was required for quorum. So if you have anything to do with committees and boards and so on, um, by way of um, um, principle and practice, if you're going to make certain decisions, you have to have uh, a sufficient number to be considered what they call quorum or a, a, a weighty enough panel, uh, a numerous enough panel to be able to say it's a true validation of the issue in hand. And so Boaz has established quorum, 10 men, again, without question, they've sat down. And Boaz has turned in verse 3 and said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So he explains that Naomi is selling this land. And it's a bit difficult to explain, but what I would suggest is you hold the pawnbroking um, analogy in mind. You hold the pawnbroking analogy in mind. So, making a, a, a very clumsy attempt to try and explain it. Basically, when somebody fell into debt in Israel, they could sell their land to somebody um, in the way that they would sell an item to a pawnbroker. And it would serve, if you like, as a type of loan against the land. The land could never be exchanged from that person's name. The ownership could never be exchanged. And so it was almost as if the individual buying the land, and I think um, Pastor Rob spoke about it, was buying the leasehold to the property. And so at this point, in order to, 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 to retain or regain ownership and use of the land, the person in debt would then need to raise the funds either themselves or by way of a redeemer to actually re-secure the land and, and take back practical possession of the land. And so although it seems like Naomi's a landowner, she didn't have anything because she was in poverty. That was absolutely clear. And it's clear that she was in debt and so therefore was looking for a redeemer to buy back this land so that she could gain the use and value of it. Now you have to remember that a piece of land was like business. It's income generating. And so it has value to the person who's using it. And under the, the laws of redemption found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the land could not be sold because ultimately the land is God's. And as he had established the inheritance rights amongst the tribes, that had to be retained. So there was always a potential, dependent on how much was owed, um, to gain back the land. So, Boaz explains quite clearly, Naomi has come back from Moab, selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. So he's propositioned the redeemer in front of the witnesses according to the law, according to the counsel of God. This is a formal proposition. And remember what we read last time in Deuteronomy? If this individual refused the proposition, Naomi had a right to come and spit in his face and he'd have to take off his shoe and walk around shoeless and in shame. So this, was a, this could potentially have been a tense moment for my man. Because he's now been propositioned. And this is a serious thing. It's, it's going it's to cost something to, to redeem this land. Boaz says, look, it's just me and you. There ain't no other candidates in this discussion. And so if you're going to do it, do it. If not, let me know. Because I'll do it. Now what do we all want at this point? having seen the relationship with Boaz and Ruth in a seemly and circumspect fashion develop, as the audience looking on at this drama, we want my man to say, nah, you know what, it's too much for me. I can't deal with that. Sorry. You know what, you do what you've got to do, Boaz. I'm glad that you're on hand to deal with it because... And then we think, hey, Boaz is in. Ruth is in. But look what he says at the end of verse 4. I will redeem it. Wow. So, it seems like the plan has been derailed. The hopes have been dashed. Okay, so there's redemption. There's a bit of a consolation, right? But this next brother here, who hasn't even got a name... He hasn't even got a name. He's going to come and step in. But, Boaz says in verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Hmm. It's not just the field, my friend. There's a lady in the wings involved. And you know what? She's a Moabite. Now, we don't know what emphasis he put on that. But he made sure he mentioned it. Because it was something of great significance. If you look at, um, with me at Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 to 3. Now, the first verse is quite random. It really doesn't have much to do with what we're talking about right about now, but it's there. So let's just keep it in context. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And all the man said, ouch. Verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, this is the law of Moses. And this individual, who to us is nameless, may have had this on his mind as he heard those words, the Moabites. Maybe it was the excessive cost of having to take Ruth unto himself as wife. It's not absolutely certain But what we do see is that 
the state of affairs definitely changed in his mind. This wasn't just buying a field, which, if you look at it on one hand, can be seen as an investment. It's like buying a, a business that's able to make you money. Okay, I may spend a little, but in time I can make a lot. Situations change now. Because he has to take a wife and raise up an offspring and confer an inheritance to that offspring. And so in verse 6, the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. For I cannot redeem it. And you notice, he doesn't say, I will not. He doesn't say, I might not. He says, I cannot. Indicating that he doesn't have what it takes to redeem it. Now, he fears impairing his own inheritance. And again, we have so little information to reference this by and to to work out exactly what does that mean. But basically, he's saying that I stand to make a loss. I can't afford to do this. And so maybe the inheritance that was due to him, he would have had to use all of that and all that he had in order to redeem the land and also take Ruth to wife and pass on an inheritance. It was clear that He couldn't afford it. And so he passes and invites Boaz to take on the responsibility. Now, it's interesting because one of the things that really spoke to me in this was the way in which so often we look for other things as being the first option when it comes to our need of help. You see, Boaz is, in so many ways, an example of Christ. This term kinsman redeemer finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who is the great redeemer, as we'll explore further in just a minute. But, It's clear here that this other option, although it seemed legitimate, this other individual fundamentally could not help. Regardless of the hope that he seemed to offer, regardless of the prospects, even at first response, I will do it. But when the rubber hit the road, when push comes to shove, he was not able This ought to be a huge statement to us that helps us to retain our focus on Jesus Christ as the rescuer. So often we find ourselves in situations and our first port of call for help is the doctors. And that's not to say that we ought not use medical science to our benefit. We understand that there is no understanding, there is no knowledge that people have that God himself didn't give. So we're able to give thanks to God for the grace and mercy that he has shown to all people according to his common grace that we're able to be benefited, whether Christian or non-Christian, by medical science. But is our reliance and our trust in medical science... I think of the abortion debate, which is very topical at the moment. And the way in which medical science would say, you know what, your child is going to be disfigured, is going to be deformed in some way, you should have an abortion. Are we to rely on medical science in such a situation or to trust God? For some of us, it may not be medical science, doctors and so on. 
For some of us, it may be education. We've had it drummed into us. Study your books. You will be a doctor or a lawyer. As if every other profession really doesn't matter. (laughs) And yet, with that high premium being placed upon education, we can often see that as our rescuer, as our saviour, apart from the Lord. Is education bad? Of course not. You read the book of Proverbs and and it's, it's multitude of verses speaking of the need for us to cry out for understanding and seek after knowledge and cry for wisdom. So education in and of itself is not bad. But when we make it an ultimate thing, when we make it an idol, when we see that our lives are submitted to and subjected to the pursuit of education, even to the exclusion of submission to Christ, then it has taken the place wrongly of the true rescuer. Education is good, but it cannot save you from hell. I remember the story of a young boy who was in a, in a rowing boat one evening as the, the moon was shining and he was there with a, a mature man, um, friend of the family and someone who he enjoyed spending time with. And the man said to him, Son, do you know about cosmology? As he looked at the stars. And the boy said, No, sir. And he began to tell him about the stars and the constellations and so on. And then he he looked at the boy and he said, Son, do you know about marine biology? As they were there on the lake. And the, the, the boy said, no, sir. He began to tell him about the, the, the different organisms and fish and the, 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 the life beneath the waters. He said to him, son, do you know about navigation? He said, no, sir. And he went on to tell him, about navigation and how to navigate and tell the tides and the the seasons and as he was gesticulating he fell into the water help me son help me son the boy said sir you know about cosmology and and you, you know about marine biology and you know about navigation But sir, don't you know how to swim? (laughs) I got that from Pastor Rob, by the way. (laughs) Remember that, bro. All the knowledge in the world. But if you don't know how to swim. (laughs) But fundamentally, if you don't know the rescuer, all the knowledge in the world. For some people, it's money and material things. Worshipping the creation rather than the creator. Or maybe it's what money brings, power, status, and respect. It's clear that none of these things can save us. None of these things can redeem us, can rescue us. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And he wasn't just talking about eternal damnation because the one who would seek to gain the whole world would lose his soul in the process. You heard that phrase? Wow, they sold their soul to the devil. People look at commercial musicians and artists who are there making a lot of money and you know, they think, they think oh, I remember when they was just in it for the love of the art. They've really sold out their values They've laid aside their convictions. They've they've thrown away in order to get money. But the reality is that all of us sell our souls in some ways to some extent. What does that look like for you? Because that place at which you make a, a decision whether consciously or 
non-assertively, to follow after something else or someone else other than the Lord is you selling out. But there is no redeemer apart from Jesus. There is no rescuer apart from the Lord our Christ. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Marlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so here we have the official transaction witnessed and validated as Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi and all that is theirs. It is a wonder as to why the Redeemer, the unnamed Redeemer didn't do it. Was it because he didn't want to be associated with Ruth the Moabite? Was it because he didn't want to risk the inheritance not being passed on to their children? As we saw there in Deuteronomy 23. Now, it was recognized within Israel that these verses, particularly verse 3, related to men. And so there wasn't a huge risk involved. But it does make me wonder if that was his motive and his unwillingness to be associated with her reputation, with her identity. How sad that would be. And yet we recognize that Jesus Christ, he didn't have an unwillingness to be recognized with our reputation and our identity. He didn't draw back and say, their past is too sordid, their sins are too great. Their identity, their reputation is mud. And I cannot have that associated with my name. No. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He took upon himself our sin. And our flaws and our failings, our bad reputation and bad characters. He took it all upon himself. He who lived sinless, who lived perfect to the glory of the Father. He allowed his reputation to be tarnished with ours. In order that we might experience Redemption 
that we might experience the joy of sharing in his reputation. And likewise, we see this in Boaz. His commitment to do this honorable thing was unwavering. He received the sandal as a a physical demonstration of the passing of honor. The taking on of the commitment. And he declares, Naomi and all that belong to Elimelech, Chilion and Marlon and Ruth, the Moabite, to be his. Now, in verses 11 and 12, the elders declare a blessing upon Boaz. They declare a blessing which many would say was more than just a blessing. It was more than just, you've done a good thing, may it be well with you. But actually, this was a a prophetic declaration concerning the future of their offspring. And so, in verse 11, the elders say, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Like Rachel and Leah. And you'll remember that. These were the wives of Jacob. And actually, they've reversed the order, interestingly enough. Because Leah was Jacob's first wife, although he didn't want her. (laughs) He wanted Rachel. He accepted Leah. And yet these women were the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, the tribe from which they come from was actually born of Leah. So they were in the tribe of Judah. And Judah was the son of Leah. And so again we see that the Lord's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Exactly why the names were switched at this point is probably another sermon. But it's sufficient to say it was the way that the Lord ordered it as they spoke this. And oftentimes we have to remember that Although things may not go the way we expect, God is in control. And we must be prepared to accept that which is ordered by his hand. And so the 12 tribes come from Rachel and Leah. And then they go on to say, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And there is a sense of this, this renown going beyond the name of Boaz and Ruth, but continuing through their offspring, causing Bethlehem to be a place of great reputation. Now, next week we'll hear more of how that was literally fulfilled. And so if you think of the Christmas story and where the Savior was born, You begin to get an indication of how that was literally fulfilled. But then in verse 12, it is said, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This hurt my head. So... Okay, they are of the tribe of Judah and the elders have called back to a time when Judah, the the son, had a child called Perez by relationship with Tamar. Now in Genesis 38, and you may wish to turn there, we see that That wasn't a very straightforward situation. In Genesis 38, we see that actually that was 
That was quite a messy affair. And it does cause you to wonder, um, is this a good thing that they're actually highlighting here? And so, I'll paraphrase for the sake of time. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law and her husband died. And so, again, according to the Leverite principle, one of her husband's brothers took her to wife to raise up an offspring. But he wouldn't follow through on the act. Let's just put it like that. Verse 9 tells us, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen so as not to give offspring to his brother. So he was selfish and hard-hearted. Verse 10 tells us that he'd done wickedness in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord killed him. The next brother, likewise, would not raise up offspring. And so Judah said, look, I'm losing sons. This isn't good. Tamar, stay here, verse 11. Remain a widow here in the house till Shelah, my son, grows up because he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar waited patiently for another son who would give her offspring to continue the name of her dead husband. But it didn't happen and she was being strung along and she realized. And so Judah's wife having died, she decided, okay, here's opportunity. She went out dressed as a widow and again, this relates to our story in Ruth because it, it, it begins to expose the, the customs of the time and the ways in which, you know, even widows were, would function, as I mentioned previously last week, in order to try and support themselves. And so she dressed as a widow, went out to the roadside, and there she met with Judah, verse 15. And Judah thought that she was a prostitute. And so he propositioned her and he said, look, let me lay with you. And she said, what are you going to give me? Which wasn't a strange question if she was to be considered a prostitute. And he said, look, I'm going to give you a flock from the sheep. A sheep from the flock, sorry. And so she says, well, how do I know you're going to give me that? Give me as a pledge, as, as, a, as an assurance, your staff and your signet and your bracelet. And so Judah's like, okay then, no problem. He gives these things to her. He lays with her. He sends one of his servants with a sheep from the flock for her. The servant goes to the town. So where's the, um, the prostitute that frequents this, this particular part of the road? We don't know any prostitute out here. We don't see any prostitute around here. No, but there was a woman there and she, she was plying her trade. No, 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 no. We don't know any. And so the servant goes back and says to Judah, I can't find her. Now Judah's nervous because she's got his emblems of authority. There's a lot she could do. It's a bit like somebody hacking your account and getting your card details and, you know, what they call identity fraud, identity theft. Nobody likes the thought of what could be done against us. Somebody gets all of our details, right? But he's like, okay, look, we'll, we'll just leave her to it. Three months later, verse 24, Tamar is reported to be pregnant. This is your daughter-in-law, Judah. She was in your house. She was married to your son. 
Now she's pregnant by some unknown individual. It's scandalous. Need to deal with the matter. Bring her here that she may be burned, says Judah. She comes. Who has done this to you? Well, the man who owns this staff and this ring and this bracelet. Judah's in front of the whole court. Mm. I can just hear Judah say, Lord of mercy. But he mans up. He says, I'm, I'm the guy. And um, furthermore, you've been more righteous than me since I did not give you my son to raise up an offspring. And so when she went into labor, she had twins. She had Zerah and Perez. And this is another one of those kind of funny situations. Like there's been a few of them in the, in the scriptures where the, the twins do not come out in a straightforward manner. So Zerah's hand came out and they tied a ribbon to say, yes, this is the firstborn. But then Perez managed to work his way and be born out of the womb before Zerah. And so Perez, whose name was who means breach, basically trumped his brother at his birth. And so these are the circumstances surrounding Perez and Tamar, as they are mentioned in Ruth 4. And as we can see, it's not a very straightforward situation. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilt and a lot written about why they've been referred to here. But let me just draw a few things out of this. First and foremost, there was a clear acknowledgement that Ruth's relationship to Boaz was not by means of straightforward journey. She was a Moabite. She shouldn't have been in relationship with Boaz. She shouldn't have been in relationship with the Israelites. She was a migrant. She was an immigrant. She wouldn't have been readily sought after because of this. She may have been considered unwanted even in the way that Tamar did. And yet, regardless of the obstacle, God's purpose was to be fulfilled. Regardless of the hindrance, God's purpose was to be fulfilled. God's purpose for your life will be fulfilled. Regardless of the hindrance, regardless of the obstacle, Regardless of how unorthodox your journey, God's purpose will be fulfilled. Things may not happen in the order expected, such as Perez being born before Zerah. And yet, God's purpose will be fulfilled. In Genesis 49 verse 10, a prophecy is given that the scepter will not leave the tribe of Judah. That's the kingly scepter. In verse 9 it says, Judah is a lion cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, it was predicted even as early as that, that Judah 
Although not the oldest amongst the sons, would be the lead. And that the scepter of rule would be found in the tribe of Judah. And so, as the elders declare this blessing in a prophetic fashion, there is a sense in which this then is to be fulfilled. An acknowledgement of Judah's ruling place amongst the tribes. And an intent of the Lord to see that fulfilled through Boaz and Ruth. Now, without wanting to encroach on next week's message, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, We see a genealogy here. And in this genealogy, we see Matthew starting from Abraham, writing to the Jews, wanting to establish with clarity the identity of the Messiah. In verse 3, he references Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab, three women named in the genealogy of our Savior. Their place recognized and honored amongst the ascendants of the Savior. Ruth we're familiar with, Tamar we've learned of, Rahab we'll hear of if you're unfamiliar with in, in times to come I'm sure. If you look at the book of Joshua, you will see that Rahab also was a Gentile who pledged her allegiance to the people of God, was used by God to bring about help and assistance to the people of God, through whom she was saved. And the city was conquered, the city of Jericho. And so we see here these three women mentioned, all of whom are Gentiles, all of whom had no place to be mentioned in the genealogy. And yet the genealogy outlines the line of Christ through David. Now there's more to be said about that, but it's sufficient for us to be encouraged in this. That as God works out his purpose in our lives, regardless of our background, regardless of our lack of qualification, whether it be academically, socially or otherwise, regardless of our ethnicity, nationality, regardless of our social status, God is able to work out his purpose in and through your life. And actually, God would choose to work out his purpose in and through your life. Very often we feel less than qualified very often we feel less than able to fulfill that which God has set before us in Christ Jesus. But as we look at the situation with Ruth and Boaz, we recognize that actually it was God that done it in his grace. It was God that fulfilled it. He worked in their situation. He worked in their circumstances. 
He worked in their lives. God is able to work out his purpose of redemption in your life through Christ Jesus. And as you look at the book of Ruth, recognize Boaz as an example or a a term is type of Christ. And as you read through the book, think about what it is that Boaz speaks to us of Christ. He was a man of honor. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who rose to the responsibility that was to redeem even if it were to cost him everything. As we look to Jesus, we recognize that it cost Jesus everything in order to redeem us. Jesus is the redeemer. As we think about Ruth in the book, we recognize that If Boaz is the redeemer, an example of Christ, then Ruth, who becomes his bride, is an example of the church. One who was in poverty and recognized her poverty. She didn't try to pretend to be something that she wasn't. And in order for us to truly come into relationship with Jesus as Savior, we must first recognize our poverty. We must recognize our need. Ruth could have sat down at home and said, you know what? It's all right. I'm not going to go and give myself to gleaning, you know, poor people's work. I'm just going to wait for a guy to snap me up and keep me in the, the manner to which I'm accustomed But no. She recognized her poverty. And in that place, she was introduced to Boaz as he came to her by an unknown servant. Now, I don't want to try and extend the examples too far because we can try and look for examples in, in every little corner of the, of, the, of the book and then get into trouble. But it's interesting that it's an unknown servant in chapter 2 that introduces Ruth to Boaz. Could this be an example of the role of the Holy Spirit? Who in John, Jesus says, will not speak of himself. And yet he will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. And But one of the things that kind of confused me a little. And I must say, um, there's, a, there's a, a brother called Chuck Missler um, from Koinonia House. He's a Calvary affiliate pastor, um, and this, this brother is just a brain. And um, he has some tremendous teaching on the book of Ruth. I recommend it to you. Um, what's it called? The Romantic Road to Redemption. And as I wrestled with, okay, I can get the picture of Boaz. I can, I can get the picture of Ruth. How does Naomi fit the picture? Where does she come in? If Boaz is a representative of Christ in the story and Ruth, one of the church, how does Naomi fit the picture? Again, I was prepared to kind of just leave it alone, not try and stress the examples. And, but I heard him say this and it made a lot of sense to me. He said, Naomi, in his mind, serves as a picture of Israel. She was removed from her land to a foreign land, just as Israel were taken into exile to a foreign land. 
And yet, through her, or through Israel, Jesus coming first to the Jews, the church was birthed. I said, hmm, that feels like it's a nice fit. And it seems really quite authentic in the design as far as God is concerned with regards to presenting a complete picture in this story. And so as you read it again, read it with that understanding in mind. Read it with those considerations in mind. And see all of the little details that just begin to sparkle with regards to the example of Christ. Now in Luke 24, we see Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they're speaking to him about himself, but they don't know it's him. And they say, Jesus was crucified, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yet they didn't realize that it was him. And that he was the one to redeem Israel. And Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, demonstrating that he is the redeemer. And so we have this in Titus, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Jew and Gentile, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. A people for his own possession. You hear that? Those those terms that echo back to Ruth. Echo back to Boaz. I have purchased a possession of all that was Elimelech's and Ruth the Moabite. And so as we rejoice in our Redeemer, may we be encouraged that God is faithful to fulfill his purpose of redemption in and through your life in Christ Jesus. May we be faithful to him who has redeemed us. That we might fulfill the purpose for which he has redeemed us as we see here. And let all understand that there is no other redeemer, there is no other savior other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other option. There is no other way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for redemption. We thank you that we were not worthy to be redeemed. Lord, we weren't worth anything in and of ourselves, because of sin and the corruption of sin. And yet, Lord, you saw fit to set your grace upon us, to send your Son as he would redeem us from our sin. And as we look at the picture of Ruth, as we look at the picture of Boaz, And the way in which you work so providentially in their lives and situation. 
to bring about your will and purpose. To fulfill your purpose to redeem. We recognize that, Lord, you can do all things, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the hindrances and the hurdles, regardless of how unorthodox our life may be. You are committed to fulfilling your purpose in us through Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those who may be here today and they don't know you, Lord. I pray for those, Lord, who have been looking for redemption in other ways, been looking for rescue by other means. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. And help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ the Messiah. He who is the Redeemer. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.